Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. Now, I have to tell you something, people. You have to watch what you do in this town. Because no lie, this just happened like an hour ago. Before my first guest came in, well, before he came in, uh, a very talented director, Brian Herzlinger, who's from a past Cooper Talk guest, that's from my hometown, is in cast, helping cast the pilot. So I was like, yeah, it's good to see him. I haven't seen him for a while. Well, then my guest comes in. I meet him at the door. And there's five people out there ready to audition because they're having auditions in the building today. So I'm sitting there and I'm talking to my guest, Todd Stashik, and he knows the one girl who's auditioning. And so they're talking. And then I said, can you get a picture? And we're taking pictures. We're carrying on. And this girl who's in the lobby of the building where I record my show at says, hey, can you guys keep it down? I'm trying to study my lines. I said, what? She goes, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. We, you, you guys are sort of loud. And so I came in and I direct, I tweeted, I mean, I texted a director who I know and I said, hey, the brunette coming in has an attitude. And it turns out she was white. So yeah, you can't be a jerk. I come to this building. I'm nice to everybody, but it's just, you shouldn't do that. It's Hollywood. And am I right? My guest is Anthony Gazzisi. How you doing? I'm well. Thank you very much, Stephen, for having me here. You know, it doesn't, you, you have to be nice to people. Well, well, I think that, um, that's a general that's a general thing for life i mean i I was saying that when i walked in here uh you know i'm I'm really good at reading energy and feel your energy and i said oh this guy stephen cooper and and it's interesting you brought that up right now i felt your energy and i told you this and it was what i was feeling is that you have a very very solid and, and wonderful energy that emanates from you and i think that that is of utmost importance just in life in general because life is it's very hard for listen all all human beings have difficulties, you know, and we have we have trials and tribulations, and it's how you deal with them. And you know, it, it makes it easier if you can deal with people that are that are nice. You know, my mom, uh, as a kid, told me in in my language, basically, it's it's important to be nice, but it's more it, it but it's nice. It, no, it's nice to be important. But it's more important to be nice. And that's true, though. I yeah. think, you know, you sit there. I mean, I'm nice to a lot of people. But that just irritates you when they're like, keep it. It's like, wait a second. We're just mm. talking. So so now now I'm confused. Were you born in New York? I know you grew up in Bethlehem. But were you well, born? Yeah, I lived in Bethlehem. And I was and I went to school there as, as a young kid. And the thing is, is that, I yeah, it's, you know, there's a lot of things everywhere. Some people think I was born in New York and because of uh, my my ties to New York for many years. But I was actually born in Iran. No, I was born in Iran and Tehran and I lived there till I was about three or four years old and my father was a physician who was working in New York I had come over to finish his his medical practice to get his all the things he needed his degrees and stuff to work here in the States Uh, he was a physician in Iran but he wanted to come to the United States he loved it here and uh, thank God actually we got out before all the problems in Iran started so we left Iran before the revolution and all the problems had started and so uh, when we, my father was in Coney Island, he was, uh, he was uh, 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 chief of pediatrics at Coney Island Hospital and St. Vincent's Hospital in New York. And then he decided that he wanted to move outside of New York because it was a little too overwhelming for my mom to come to the United States and having to always in a, be in a city like New York. So we decided to reside somewhere outside in New York. Therefore, that's why we found a place like uh, Bethlehem Easton. It's funny because Bethlehem, it's like it's like you think it, it's a small town. Like you know, if 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 you're if you're from Philadelphia, you know it. And you know, we'll talk later when you went to Muhlenberg, which is in Allentown, which yeah. is, you know from the area, you know Dorney Park. I mean, every kid yeah. sees Dorney Park. <laughs> I went there. You, I was there every summer. Yeah, for I mean, the you live right there. I mean, it's yeah. like it's like yeah, when you're a kid, that's a commercial you saw. It was before like we finally we got Great Adventure in New Jersey, so we go there. But it was just, but Bethlehem was it was it's just it's a town that it's just I, ironic how your dad picked that. I mean, it's I mean it's just weird. I mean, it's just it's because it's not a it's not a big city, but it's a, it's a nice. All those cities are nice, but right? They're, they're a little more blue collar. That's what it was, I think, because of Bethlehem Steel. What it was is that my father. We still. That's why I still claim New York so heavily, is because we spent most a lot of time in New York. Even though in Bethlehem now has become a commuters spot. Do you know that people now, because of the prices of New York and the accessibility of the new highways they built, you can get to New York from Bethlehem in an hour and fifteen, an hour and twenty minutes. So an hour and a half with no with not much traffic. And so a lot of people, this is what I've been told, my friends, a lot of people that are living in Bethlehem now are actually commuters 
okay. to New York. They go into the city, they do their job, and they come and they can have a house. They can have a, a quieter living in, in Bethlehem. And so I think it was the proximity of that and also Philly. My dad had very strong ties. That he was at the children's hospital, and my father was a physician, and he was at the children's hospital in Philadelphia too. So it was kind of a midpoint. So we we basically were, I think that's why he chose it. I think it was for location, and it was a... You know, it was it was an area that had good schools and, and an area that was quiet and suburb suburban. You know, and and it was it was definitely a different speed than New York. Well, now the acting you got in later because as a kid you were you were a really good soccer player. Yeah, man. I mean, it's so funny. That's that's really my life right now. I have two twin boys and I'm a soccer coach and I uh, I've I've coached for many years and I I really I was you know I went to school on soccer scholarship I thought that's what I was going to do with my life really until some very severe knee injuries and that's actually how I got into acting was that I, I needed an outlet to do something and I you know I was just talking to somebody about sport you know athletes are artists really the good ones and especially in a game like soccer which is very creative the way you move the way you make it's like ballet if you ever watch Messi player Ronaldo these guys are artists it's not even a question of artistry. And so I felt like I couldn't perform anymore on a soccer pitch. So I needed another outlet. And I was always in the arts as a kid and the ties to New York. And I worked with the theater company, Touchstone Theater Company that was run by Bill George, Bill and Bridget George. And I was working as a child actor in that company. And so I was doing this. I was, I was involved in everything, music, art, athletics. I just, I just, I loved everything. I loved life as a kid and I had a great childhood. But the injuries really stopped me from really playing at the high. You you can't play at these levels, and it's getting even more competitive. Well, what's amazing is, and it's funny you say that, because uh, my college, I went to Richard Stockton in New Jersey, and we were we were Division whatever four three A, but we always had a good team. And we remember we beat Notre Dame when we were undefeated a few years ago. And you're right, just the the talent, because I know like a guy who was our goalie, actually he coached, I think Iran wow. team. And now he's the head soccer coach at Northwestern. Oh, which is a great soccer his school. His name's Tim. Uh, his name's Tim Lenahan. But yeah, he taught. I think he was a coach for Iran for their Olympic team, or he knew the coach and he started this relationship with the guy who uh, is uh, Santos Santiago, who's a soccer announcer now, who also played at our school for one semester and ended up playing for Real Madrid. Wow. But it's just it's weird because yeah, soccer and now because like you know you when you played you know kids. People weren't drawn to it as much, and now it seems kids are really drawing, and little kids are starting because before oh, yeah. it was little kids play Pop Warner, but now I, on Facebook I see so many oh, yeah. people whose kids are playing. Well, yeah, and I was going to say kudos to the people in Jersey. I mean, all the tournaments we played, no question, no question, there are three areas of this country that are the hotbeds for the future of American soccer, and the tri-state area is one of them. And New Jersey specifically, I think even more so than New York and Pennsylvania, will be producing some of the best soccer in this country. That state, you know, Tony Miola, there was a lot of national soccer players that came out of, of New Jersey. And uh, I remember the talent pool in Jersey was outrageous. I don't know why. It just happens to be, you know, there's certain states that are very, and, and the, California happens to be one too, but California makes sense because we have so many, uh, at, you know, the ethnicities and the diversities of people from other countries where soccer is really big. But also I would like to say, Stephen, I think the reason why you see uh, um, a proliferation of kids playing is because, I, I'm sorry to say this, and I'll say this anytime, and it's very hard for people to consume this, I don't think there's a future for American football in years from now. I think that if, if, People keep, I know very many parents. That's why you see a lot more ethnic and, and you know, before you would see African-American players in basketball and it was, soccer was a very white sport in this country because African-American kids t tended to go play football, uh, basketball, and, and, you know, that was their games. But now I, I think pa responsible parenting, how, how can you put your kid in a sport that you know now there's, there's a movie coming out with Will Smith. About about the damages of 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 American football to the head. They just they just the NFL just had to pay out a billion dollars. Where and you who would subject their children to child abuse? Right. My kids. My, one of my kids was on the in 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 a park the other day, and a soccer uh, and a football coach saw my kid throw the ball. It was insane. My kid's arm at eight years old. Insane. He he could easily be put into a program and become a quarterback at any of the high schools in his. I mean, at his level, the way that the distance he throws. My kid's never going to see the light of day with football. Never. Because that's irresponsible parenting. Why would I put my kid in a sport that's going to damage him 
when he's you know in his in his in his twenties and thirties even you know that young. So that's why I think soccer. You don't hear a football mom. You don't hear base. You hear right. soccer mom. Right. It's huge. It's a very big thing. Well, it must have been weird for you leaving soccer because you know if you had a scholarship, it means you were very good. And oh, I know, and you're I, sweet. I don't know. You, but I mean, you have to. I mean, you just, they don't give scholarships to people who suck. I mean, it's that's, that's just the rule. But you're sitting there, and then you leave, and then you go into the acting. But it must be hard because you know you're an, you're an athlete in college, and you're an athlete. I mean, I know you acted when you were a kid, but when you're an athlete, it means you played through high school, and now that's gone from you. And so it must have been really. I mean, did the acting take that void right away? Absolutely. And that's why I did it. I I think it was like a performances, you know. And that's why theater is the same because when you're out on on the pitch and you hear people screaming and cheering for you, it's the same recognition that you would get of being on stage. I guess. I mean, I, maybe it was. I don't know if it was, I didn't choose it for ego reasons. Like I needed to hear the screaming. It was just I, I really enjoyed performing. And yes, there was a huge void for me. I was I cried a lot about it because soccer is, was my 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 heart and my soul. And, and it still is, you know, I mean, I still really, I mean, I'm involved in it in every aspect from coaching now to nine-year-old kids to AYSO coaching, to club coaching, to rec coaching. I mean, I, I spent most of these past few years not even involved with my career as I was going some, through some personal troubles, but really dealing with being of service to these kids. Not that I'm some superstar, but I, I do, you know, you said my high school, my high school team was nationally ranked every year. Freedom High School. We were always on the Gatorade all uh, the Gatorade. Uh, we always had Gatorade All Americans, the player wise, and we were o- always ranked in the top ten or twenty nationally in the highest division of soccer. So um, it was a very serious, uh, very serious sport at my school. So you, you're Muhlenberg. You become an acting major. Yes, I did. <laughs> so when you graduate. I heard you go. You go straight back to New York. I mean, did you yeah, I, I went back to New York. Yeah. So you knew when you were graduating college, you said, "This is what I want to do." You know, I mean, because a lot of times we graduate college, we don't know what the hell we're going to do. No, I didn't know what the hell. But so, but you, but you didn't. So how'd you end up coming back to New York to start I, acting? I mean, if you ask me now, I mean, I, I've always been a spiritual person and a you know kind of a religious person, but I it was got. I mean, it was it's, it was like the will of God in a way because I didn't know what I and I had a major surgery on my knee. My uh, senior year in college, I actually graduated on crutches. I re- I, I I received my degree with crutches because of a sock. My I mean, I had many surgeries on this knee, and that was like the third one in college. So I was sitting at home after having graduated, going, "What the hell am I going to do with my life?" I mean, I, I I mean, I have an acting degree, and I thought, "Well, okay, but how do you start?" I had no because at the time there was no Iranians in American television that I could look at or actors that I could look at. I was one of the, I was, I, honestly, I'm not saying this in a, I'm just, it, it's not in a really, I say it with the most great humbleness, really humility. I was the first Iranian American to ever, me and my cousin the same year, ironically, it was very strange. He had it in comedy, his half hour with Whoopi Goldberg, and I had it in drama. First Iranian American to ever be a series regular on network television. See that, yeah. Never been done before. Who was your cousin? Omid Jalili, he's he's from England, he's from the UK, and he, he had a very big career there, and he came over, he's a comic, and Whoopi hired him for his show, and we both were, in, uh, he was in New York, and I was in LA doing these series at the same at the same time. Well, you're right, because there, there wasn't, there wasn't the, an Iranian in TV, and that's not something we didn't see, because TV was very white, or it was it was Af- African American, it wasn't, you know, there wasn't Asian, there wasn't Latino, there wasn't thing, so when, did you feel a hard, when you st- started doing it more in New York, did you feel like a barrier, because you're like, no, you, because you I was there. I was too dumb. And anyway, New York, New York casting was much more uh, forgiving. You know, in New York, it's so diverse. I mean, they did a lot more non-traditional casting, at least in theater they did. Um, it's a theater. It's an artistic community. We embrace everyone. doesn't matter. Black, white, straight, gay, uh, transgender. It didn't matter. I mean, we loved everyone. You know, Muslim, Jew, Christian. It did really, I mean, you're, you're an artist for a reason. You have a sensitivity. I mean, you have that same sensitivity, I'm sure, Stephen. And that's why, you know, whether you were doing comedy or whether you're on the air, you, you, you have that energy. That's what I picked up. And that's where the sweetness, I think that most artists, even though we have, you know, our anger issues and resentment and angst about life and this and that, but we are sensitive souls. And so, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think it was that hard for me at the time because when I got to New York, I was just, I just went for it. I didn't know the later, the, the, the real biases and prejudices that exist, especially that now that you would, that you've seen in television and film, but I, I wasn't really subjected to it. So when I talk about it, it's better because I don't look like the bitter actor. You know, I was on a series with Gina Davis and, and I played, I was a gay guy. I was a gay character with HIV in the White House. 
you know, as 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 an Iranian guy. I mean, I was in, in speaking like this instead of Ya Allah, hun, right. you know, everything is all of a sudden I have to be Arab with uh, you know uh, accent and big guy Allah Akbar blow myself up. No, so I was lo- I've been one of the lucky ethnic actors, but I feel it's my duty to speak out for the ethnic actor because it's 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 messed up, you know. But but you know it's it is it is what it is. I don't you know I don't want to. Now, when you but when you hit New York running, you started producing a lot of plays, and you I mean you you wrote and produced a lot of stuff, right? Yeah, because I was finding it hard to to get the work that I wanted, you know. And so I I said, you know, I'll put to do it and put myself in it, you know. So you're hanging. How long? How long are you kicking around New York? And I read something where it said your happiest, some of your happiest time in acting is when you were a broke, starving actor in New York. And I think you probably felt, you know. You had, maybe that freedom. I mean, we all sit there and go, everyone always worries as we get older. I always say this, you know, as we get older, we worry. Like, I remember doing comedy in Philadelphia, and there was a 16-year-old kid who came on stage, and he had no fear. Like, us guys, we were, we were working the circuit. We had to watch what we said because, you know, we weren't, we didn't want to lose a month's worth of bookings because that pays our bills. That's right. And I think, like him, though, he would just go on and just <laughs> go off because at 16... What's the worst thing, you, you know, you're lucky you're even, you snuck into the nightclub. The worst they're going to do is throw you out. Right. And when you were sitting there, did you, just, was it just you had no fear? You just wanted to get it going when, at that young age? Because it, it's, it's a freedom. Even though you're starving and broke, there is that freedom. Well, it, it, that's exactly right. It's the freedom, but it's also, you know, it, it, there's no responsibility. I mean, look, if I get kicked out on my ass for not paying my rent, uh, it's just me on my ass and I probably can move to some friend's place or whatever and... You know, I mean, I can't even believe it. Back when I went, when I went back to New York, I had an apartment that was rent controlled. That it was, it was a small studio, but we had a doorman, elevator building on the Upper West Side, and it was only six hundred dollars a month. So, I mean, when I say poor, it's relative because I didn't really need that much to survive. I mean, between my cable bill, which I needed because I loved watching you know, TV on a cold night, walking in when, you know, from, from waiting tables, I waited tables for a long time. And, uh, it was just good to be broke. But but when I say broke, I mean, I made enough money as a waiter that, and a lot of it actually at times where I had a lot of fun, but it was, when I say broke, it's relative. Yeah. I mean, I was broke. I didn't have money to, you know, to do the things that other people did and travel and, and, you know, but I had, I had a really good life in New York and it was artistic. I was able to go to my acting classes and, I was able to do theater and I was able to hang out on the steps in the summertime at, on a brownstone that wasn't even mine and have a coffee and cigarette with my friends and talk about dreams of like, or, or you know, like being the next Al Pacino or, or what the great play was that we saw. We'd go see, you know, New York is such a wonderful city. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. So you're in New York. So when do you decide to move to LA? Well, now, I know you got cast in McHale's Navy. Is that, was that yeah, your first? Yeah, it was. It was. Um, wow, you do very good research. I, you know, what happened was, is that I was in New York and I, I was, I was really struggling. Um, at this point, really struggling because nothing had happened in my career except for the plays and stuff like that, that I did. And I decided that that's when I, well, actually that's when I decided to start doing plays and I did a play in New York and that, that play was getting a lot of attention. So my girlfriend at the time, her her nephew, someone in her family, the the uncle of that guy was the head of a major agency, Louis Ambrosio of Ambrosio Mortimer. They were huge ethnic. They were really good at that. They had Samuel L. Jackson, Angela Bassett, Steve Buscemi, uh, uh, Charles. I mean, the, the list was crazy who they rep. rep. And... Um, they had a New York office and an L.A. office, and they called Lewis, and they said, Lewis, come on, this kid's an actor. He's busting his ass. Give him a shot. And he was like, Anthony, I, I don't know this guy. You know, who is this guy? Send him out of here. Anthony, who? All right. So I went into this office, and it was a crazy story. Like, the first day I went into the office, I flew out to L.A. to meet him. I sat in the office the whole day, and no one saw me. And he would walk in and out. Lewis would walk in and out, go to the bathroom, stop, look at me, go back into his office. And one of the assistants came out and said, "Sorry, they, they didn't have time to see you." And I was like, "I had, I know it's crazy, but but I love Lewis, and, and you know, but but it, it was it, it was hard because I was sitting there. It, it, I would have left, you know. It was it was that young naive like belief in yourself, like persistence. Literally, I was there from I got there for a ten o'clock meeting, and I I think I sat there almost to the end of the day, and then they said you got to come back tomorrow. But the next day, I did go into Lewis's office, and Lewis says, "What do you you know? What do you want?" And I said, "I want it. I just I want to be an actor." And he said, okay. 
I'm going to help you. And he did. And within two months, three months, uh, I, I landed Mikhail's Navy in a, a very considerable role. I mean, it was a miracle. I mean, he's, my whole life has been a miracle in some ways. I mean, a Persian kid, an Iranian kid, all of a sudden, alongside the great Tim Curry that I grew up going to Rocky Horror with, it was insane. When I was in the, when I, when I, when I was in the airport, lot, you know, waiting to get on that plane, and I was looking at Tim Curry going, I, I can't believe this. How did I go from doing, you know, fringe theater off Broadway, you know, really theater to like all of a sudden flying to a, a, a crazy, you know, exotic destination and doing a movie with Tom Arnold, Tim Curry. Uh, Pat Oswald. Uh, Dean, huh? Pat Oswald. Yeah, yeah. He was in it. Who was? Who was? Pat Oswald. Patton? He had a very, he had a very small part. I don't remember Patton. I don't know if he was, and, um, and yeah, but there was a lot of people in it. That Deborah Messing, who's a huge star now, and, um, they all became friends and, you know, they were wonderful people, but I just, I couldn't believe how that happened. And so then I, after that, I said, I, I got to stay in LA. You know, I'd come out, that's, you know, I'd come out just because Lewis said, okay, and their office in LA was going to rep me. That's how I got to LA. So you get that movie and now that means you have some juice and you have an agent. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's, that's some, now what do you start going out for? What kind of auditions and what do you? You know, I went out for everything like bad guys, good guys. I mean, it was, Lewis had a very, they were a very powerful agency and, they got me in for a lot of stuff. I just, you know, and I and I actually started working a lot. But then the agency had some some problems, and uh, they, uh, I don't even know if I can go. I don't want to get into it, but they they got shut down basically because of some problems that had happened and legal this, legal that, and um, I had to move on. And it's, after that, it was a very dark period in my career. It was very hard for me. I could that was a very high level agency to represent me with no credits. So even though when I left there with credits. Then I was on my own. I didn't have any contacts or anyone, and I, I couldn't find really agents. So it was it was tough to get an agency, and then I got an agency finally, and, and then I had an agent there that really believed in me and went to bat, and he left the business. It's like everyone that I've had that's really believed me has left the business. My publicist that I had for years that was the best, Mandy Hampton, she left the business, but it's just weird because they I think they get this epiphany. I'm drawn to them and attracted to them because they realize that I... the. I don't give a, you know, the business isn't what's the most important. It's to be a good person is what right. we're talking, you know? And so they're the same way. That's why we're attracted and we represent and they get so tired of the craziness in the business that they leave, you know? But it was tough after that for a while. Well, now you're also on a show called Threat, Threat Matrix. Well, that's, that was, I would say, I've had a lot of breaks, but that was the big, that was the real big one. Because you were, we as you look at your IMDb, you're working, you're getting spots, you're working and you're working. And yeah, you, I was and working. Together, and now, yeah. and then how did that come about? Well, what what happened at that time was that that was hard because I had just gotten married and, you know, I was struggling and I was struggling to even get work as a waiter. And I finally landed a job all the way in Pasadena and I was driving to this job 30, 40 minutes, 50 minutes in traffic. And it was an Italian restaurant that was called Biche, which was a, there was a Biche in New York. And I knew the owners from the New York one and they helped me get that job. I couldn't get a job anywhere. And so I was working there and, um, and I started to get auditions during pilot season. And I went in to meet Mary Jo Slater for this for this pilot that I had no idea, which was called Threat Matrix. And uh, I went in just, it was a one-on-one -on -one with her. And I just walked out, didn't think anything of it. Next thing you know, right away, I got to go back to another audition to meet the producers. And then right away, I'm going the next day to, to one audition. And then the, it was like seven auditions. And I was wearing my waiter's outfit. Uh, I got the part in my waiter's outfit because I had to run from the auditions to my work at Beachhead because I, you know, and I was wearing a black vest, white shirt, and white pants. It was crazy. And then I tested in that same outfit, my white shirt and black pants. And um, and I got the part, and that's the history right there. Was, uh, Charlie Hayde, who's a wonderful director, and I love him as a person. He helped me, you know, he believed in me and, and said, look, this guy's the guy. And, and it was the first time an Iranian-American had ever gotten a, uh, series that was the one it was 2003 so that was this the, the series only ran for a season but it gave me it gave me hope and possibly look i can do this you know because i had no one to look to there was no role models for me. right i was that's what i was thinking also and, and you, you're right it's like you sit there and it actually shows that you know when you have no role models because there's no one in that business you yeah. sit there and go you can be banging across your head but if you if you're banging it back you know your head going okay I, for me, uh, there's no bald guys. But then I look, I go, there's lots of bald guys. Yeah. But for you, so it gave you that sliver of hope, and it also must have made you feel good because you were a series regular, and that had to change your life drastically. Drastically, and financially too, knowing that I can that I could actually support a family because the the money you get paid as a series regular is so out of bounds, different than what you do as a, just a, a working, you know, 
run-of-the-mill actor that gets scale. And so um, it changed my life in that way to my perceptions that I, this is possible because it's hard. It was hard for me to really perceive. That's why I say by the grace of God because how did a brown guy, and at the time I wasn't bald, but now I am, you say bald brown guy get, you know, on a, on a series. It's, it's never been done before. You know, I, like you said, like if you're, if you're, if you're bald, you have someone to look to. You you have Kojak, you have Telly Savalas, you have everyone. Bruce if Willis, you're black, yeah. yeah. If you're black, you have you know Sidney Poitier. If you're, it doesn't matter you know what background you are. I mean, if you feel like you can't make it, you you had somebody to look toward. You know, and for me, really, there was no one. And and in a way, you know, the thing that moves me most is when I see the young Iranian actors who are making it now come up to me and go, "Don't think we forgot about you." You know. If it wasn't for what you were doing, you were kind of a trailblazer. That makes me feel good. You know, you know, not to be ego, not because I really, as actors, we got to work on this ego shit. But um, I just, it makes me happy to know that I was of service to somebody, you know, and I was being able to 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 help their career in whatever way they think it did. So, well, after that show, you know, I know you're on 24, and I, I know 24 was something that I think 24 started bringing more ethnicity roles. But once again, those roles were the bad guy. Really? Which I always think, you know, for an Iranian actor, you know, it's, or any, you know, Middle Eastern actor, a lot of roles have been bad guys. Yeah. And so, I mean, I mean, and that's got to put you as an actor, it must have sort of pissed you off for the fact mm-hmm. that you're a good actor. You know, you're not just a bad guy. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, I mean, how do you deal with that? Especially back then, it's changed now, but still, I mean, like Homeland and stuff like that still has those kind of roles how would you how did you sit there and go okay you know what i can't take a bunch of roles like this i mean i mean you know how did well, you deal with that it was in, it's interesting you asked that it's a very it's a very uh, sensitive subject with with middle easterns right now and it's a big topic of discussion everywhere you know npr and they are all always addressing it uh, articles about this thing and you know they've interviewed me a lot and and, and I, for me um some of my uh counter some of the people that work you know other middle eastern actors they refuse to do those kind of roles anyway because they think it's a negative stereotype. I, I don't. And I was very happy to play bad guys as long as the bad guys are three-dimensional and that we see them as three-dimensional, which then doesn't make them bad guys. You know, the reality is, is in this in this game, uh, the word terrorist is 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 negotiable because, you know, I've, I have a father now and how I liken it to is, look, and I think anyone would, I mean, I don't know if they go to the extreme that I would because I have such a deep love for my kids. If anyone killed my children unnecessarily, uh, Steve, you better believe I'm not just going to sit there and go, where's the law? You know, I don't believe in that. I'm Dirty Harry now. You know what I mean? I, the vigilantism is going to run wild. I, and all I think is terrorism is just a, 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 the microcosmic, uh, the, the, the microcosmic word for terrorism is vigilantism. It's just a lot of times this is, now, not saying that revenge is good or vengeance is good, but I, people don't really understand when your entire family has been wiped out by a drone and it's bombed and it's blown your your your, your where you live for no reason. You're 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 a farmer and you're just going to work farming and trying to have a subsistence living, and you you, you your family and your your house gets leveled. You're going to be pissed off. Right. So how is that considered terror? You know what I mean? I mean, it's like, was it terrorism when the drone? So I, as an actor, have always said, well, I'll play these roles because I don't see them. As now, there are some very evil people that want evil things, but you remember, they justify it for themselves of why. I don't think there are a lot of these people that have the mechanics and the thinking of doing what they're doing. They have their brains together. It's not like, you know, they don't know what they're doing and there's some crazed guy that walks into a, a movie theater and just shoots people randomly. That's, that's, those people are nuts. And, but these people, those people are terrorists, in my opinion, because they're just, they're, they're terrorizing people for the sake of terrorizing. But uh, the word terrorist, so I didn't have problems. I love my character in 24, actually. He was a really great guy, and he was, he was three-dimensional. He, he was, he was, there was a reason why he was doing what he was doing. And, um, you know, I, I, just, I just think that it's not a problem for me as long as there's both sides. My, my issue is that I've always talked about it's not enough balance. You know, if you really look at the hospitals across America right now, my father and all, a lot of his counterparts, a lot of Iranian Middle Eastern doctors in these hospitals, who are doing good, who are helping people, who are doctors without borders right now. Every single one of my friends that's Iranian, I have a lot of them that are doctors, are in other countries, third world countries, every four or five months giving their time to help people in need. Where are those characters on shows like Code Chicago, you know, Chicago Hope or or Grey's Anatomy or, you know, they recently started throwing them in there. But 
that was because maybe because of letters I wrote. I, I wrote, you know, I was like crazy. I wrote to um David Wells uh, when when I was a young guy, saying, what, you know, you have this show. Um, what was the George Clooney show? Yeah, ER. ER. You have a show about doctors, and you have all these ethnicities. And th- if you go to any hospital, fifty percent of the hospital is Middle Eastern or Indian. You know, how 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 can you justify this? How can you justify not having a character that represents? You know, my father who gave his life to being a great physician or Dr. Zolfagari, my dad's all his counterparts in Philadelphia or in New York. I mean, it's, it's nuts, Stephen. So that was, that's been my big fight and gripe. It's not, if you want to show the negative, that's fine because every culture has negative. Oh, yeah. Look at the Italian. I mean, Italian, you see the mobster. You know, you see yeah, the but thing. that's all they've been recently been showing. Right. I don't blame my Italian friend, Eric, you know, just recently was saying, God, it's the... It's you know he's a very dear friend. He's been on the show. Eric Palladino was a wonderful art, a human being, and wonderful artist. You know how I got him on the show? How'd you get him? This is the weirdest rand. It's the randomest thing. I was I met some friends for a drink in Burbank, and I was going home to meet my girlfriend for dinner. And she's like, I said, oh, I'm gonna I'm I'm going on happy hour. I had some guys in town, so I had a few few drinks, a little buzz. I'm walking back, and I go, I I think you know what. What we're having, I'm gonna get some onion rings. I don't know why. And so I go to Foster Freeze right here because I live right up the street. And there's Eric with his his, his kid, his oh, kids. And I look and, and I go, I, I know you, you're an actor. And we started talking. I gave him my card. And then like two weeks later, he was on the show. Oh, wonderful. It was just random. It was just that random thing. That, that is amazing. He was at a foster freeze. His kids were running around. I was joking around with his kids. And then I recognized him. Yeah. Anyway, so what were you saying? About no, I was just saying he's, you know, and he was saying how sparse it's become because he's from Yonkers and he's a New York guy and he's a wonderful actor. I mean, good looking. And. He said, look, they only want to see me for like Ginzo's. Like guys, like, hey, how you doing, Joey? Hey, let's go, you know, let's go, you know, let's go, let's go shoot this guy. And uh, and because that's the only roles that they're writing for a time, they, they won't see him as other things. It's frustrating. I, I He's a wonderful actor. It must be frustrating, but you must have been very encouraged when the commander-in-chief role came up. Well, again, that's Rod Lurie. Uh, that's Rod being, Rod Lurie's a trailblazer. Rod Lurie is a progressive-minded, wonderful and 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 really critical thinking human being you know his background he went to west point he's he's served his country he's 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 an amazing guy you know he's 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 just he sees the world with with eyes that anybody else doesn't you know he's fair he's israeli his background is israeli and um you know to write the character he wrote for me and uh it was a straight offer i didn't even audition for him he had seen my work and said this guy is good enough and it was amazing to hear to, to for me to act opposite giants like donald sutherland and gina davis to not audition for this man showed me so much respect and i was like if it's good enough for rod and now sometimes i still have to go through three or four auditions right. just to get a little role and i'm like okay I'm, I'm 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 humble like that but i mean it's just weird how the world works how a guy as big as rod Will 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 straight hire me for something as big as that, a, a big series for maybe the biggest at the time, and um, and other guys will make me jump through hoops to get you know two lines on a show. It's it's, it's insanity, really. Well, as an actor, how did you handle that role? Because two reasons: one, you're dealing with two touchy subjects. As I said, it's an Iranian man in a position that the viewers aren't used to seeing. As we said, there's a lot of you know, and then you're also in a position where you have HIV, which even back then, there wasn't the awareness. There wasn't roles Not at like all. that. So how do you as an actor sit there? Because in all honesty, it's some pretty big damn shoes to fill because it's not only do you have one thing that's important that yeah. can break Holly, help Hollywood out, the other thing can break. And so how do you as an actor sit there and balance that? I mean, and plus not to boot that you're working with these legendary actors. Yeah, that was I mean, scary. You know, that was I'll tell you, that was the moment I realized. He didn't tell me. Rod just told me Gina's in it. He didn't tell me Donald was in it. He was a, a legend. Legend. He's a screen. He's an icon, as as Kiefer would put it. But um, when I got to the to Richmond to shoot this, uh, I walked into my hotel room and there was a they slip in your hotel room, you know, the call sheets for the next day, and the call sheets had the pseudonyms for these the the two actors. They had all us uh, our names, but they had Donald's pseudonym, which I won't mention, and, and Gina's pseudonym. So the people in the in the hotel wouldn't know that you know whatever for privacy reasons, and. Uh, I was upset. I called up my agent and I was like, what the hell is this? Where's Gina? I thought Gina was on this. I go, we don't know what's going on. Like I, I didn't know. It was like they changed, they recast. <laughs> so I go, I go to the, go to the table read in the morning. And of course, Gina's there and we say hi and we meet and we have a great talk. And then 
I go and I'm sitting next to her for the table read because I play her chief aide, her assistant, her chief aide, and, and, and everyone's seated and there's one seat empty. And my head's down in the script reading through the stuff. And the person who walks in is sits down and has this big floppy hat, this big white beard down to here, long, long hair. I mean, it was, and glasses. And his head is down like this. And so I look up and I say, okay, that seat's filled. Still not knowing it's Donald. Okay. But I haven't, nothing, because his head is down, but I see the long beard, the flowing hair. And so nothing was said. Um, no introductions were made. It was just, Rod said, thank you all for being here. Um, and we'll talk after. Let's just get into it and read. And we started reading. And I still was like, well, who is this guy? And it got to his part with his head down. And all of a sudden, the voice. And you, that voice is so, I mean, they use him now for a lot of voiceovers for commercials. And I said, holy shit, it's Donald Sutherland. And I was, I was overwhelmed at that minute because I was like, oh my God, you're in a series. You got you to gotta step up, man. This guy is a legend. Gina's a, in a legend in her own right. And you, you have to step up. And it was, uh, it, was, it was hard. I think a lot of prayer, meditation, and also really, you know, great people around me. You know, Rod was very supportive and everyone, but it was uh, it was a very stressful time for me to be in a series like that. Now that episode, that series, got very good acclaim. It had yeah. good ratings, and then it got canceled. And which political it, reasons, in my opinion, is that what it is? no? Because because what was your reason? I, I you know I can't think now. Someone who was who was you don't go from seven you don't, on that show, yeah, and they you, said you don't was, go from seventeen million viewers, seventeen million top five show in the country. To all of a sudden off the air by the end of the season. I mean, how, I mean that that is an epic failure. But I, you know, I have my own ideas. Again, everyone's always they use this word conspiracy with me. I, I don't believe in conspiracy. I don't like the word conspiracy because I I base things on what I think are ideas and facts. And the fact is, we were very highly rated, and the show still got canceled. We had some internal problems, uh, but. You know, it was a year of the the races for the primaries were happening, and Hillary was running for office, and the show was wildly popular in the South, and you know, wildly popular in the South, and the, the notion of a female president was really uh, 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 something that no one had addressed in television, and now we have a show on that network television that it's addressing and making it believe that people believe well, we can have a very competent, powerful because that's how Gina is. She's very competent, powerful, intelligent, funny, likable, charismatic, everything. And I think it just made some people nervous. I don't know if that's the reasons why, but I'm just saying it was odd. I don't know exact reasons, but I think, you know, how, Rod was was no longer the showrunner and Stephen Bochco came in to run the show. I thought that was, a, you know, part part of an issue that it was strange. And um, so I don't really know the exact reasons. I can never know. I'm not at those high levels and I can't speak on that. But I can say that I felt that there was something off about how a show that was that massive got got canned. You know? And that must be so frustrating being an actor For, because oh you're sitting there. And first of all, as I say, we talked about this earlier. I mean, another guest about you know you come to the table with a Tina Davis and a Donald <laughs> Sutherland. I mean, you know, I mean, two huge. I mean, Tina Davis, Tom and Lee. I mean, everyone everyone knows who Tina Davis is. Everyone knows who Donald Sutherland is. And people like them. That's the thing. Like, like the Thumb and Louise, people will watch her just because the women love her because of that movie. You already have that audience building. And Donald Sutherland, people just go, I mean, even people who watch Animal House, oh, right. you know, they just yeah. love oh, him. Yeah. They go, oh my God, you know. So, I mean, as an actor, it must be frustrating because you probably, when you signed up for that show, you probably said, you know what, I'm going to get probably three or four seasons out of that just because. We all thought that. Actually. It's common sense. Yeah, and, it's, and, and after the, the numbers. And so how do you deal as an actor? How do you sit there? I mean. Well, it messed uh, up my life in some ways. I mean, I went and bought a house in Hancock Park that, I mean, based on this notion. I learned a lot of lessons from it. You can never, you know what I mean? You, you can't, I mean, are you crazy? I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I must have been nuts. I must have been smoking crack at the time because. I, uh, you know, how, how I justified that, it was that, well, this is a big show and, you know, I don't see it getting canceled and we were about to have children. My, my wife at the time was pregnant with twins and I said, Hancock Park is the best neighborhood. It's wonderful. We can, I can do this if I continue to make that kind of money. Well, why, why can't I own a place and look what happened, you know, and it's been a struggle because of that since, but you know. It, 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 you just, you never know in this business. And I've learned very hard lessons. You just don't know, you know. Well, that got canceled. And you go back and you're working 
you know, it's things yeah. not like it's not yeah. like you're not working. You know, no, no, I, you know, but I've never since since that show there was a lot of pieces I had to pick up. You know, and um, including my divorce, which has been very difficult on me mentally and emotionally. And, you know, it's life. You know, you deal with it. You you try to make the best of all the hard things that were handed to you. And you do it with some grace and dignity. And that's what I'm trying to do, Stephen. You know, and it, but it, it it definitely, it sent me back a while. Because it's a, this is a mental game. This whole industry is a very mental. You have to have strong mental will and mental strength. And, uh, you know, everyone's not, I'm a human being. I have my ups and downs and, uh, I was down for a while and, and that affects you, but you know, I'm by the grace of God again, you know, I'm, I'm rising from the ashes. And, but you got, you were on loss, which must've been great. Loss was, you know, it's funny because loss was, uh, the, the, the job right before my divorce. I came back from one of my last episodes of loss and my, uh, my ex-wife sat down with me and said, uh, we're done. <laughs> And it was, what I'm saying, it was the yin and yang. It was one of the best jobs I could ever have imagined for me uh, as an artist, as, as a human being. It changed my life, Lost. How did it change? I mean, just but just being in the, the, the Hawaii, just the atmosphere. The, the atmosphere in Hawaii and being with such spiritual icons. You know, um, uh, you know, everybody on that show was deep human being. You know, I mean, all the friendships that I had, you know, uh, Kevin Duran and, um, you know, Kenny Leung and Jeff and, uh, uh, I mean, they were all really Dan Kim, who I grew up with, who, who 6,000 miles later, Daniel Day Kim, who played Jin on the show. I mean, this guy went to, I went to high school with him and here we are thousands of miles away acting opposite each other. You know, Jeff Fahey, I call him father Fahey. Uh, you don't get a greater, he's an ambassador to, for the, for the UN to, to human rights and, and, um, um, uh, what's that? Wait, uh, Jeff Fahey, the actor was the guy who was the lawnmower man. Or yes. That really, I didn't know that. He's, he's one of the most deep, profound human beings who's affected my life, uh, beyond my, beyond words. And he, and I believe that's one of the reasons why I was on Lost is because I'm always searching to make a difference in the world and to serve humanity the best way I can. And, uh, I mean, Father Fahey, I mean, he, he, he enlightened us all, you know, he, he, his, 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 his work with, um, all these refugees. I mean, he's the ambassador for refugees throughout the world. He spends his, his life really helping and giving back. And, uh, I love Jeff with all my heart and he, and he changed my life and everyone on that show was wonderful. You know, everyone on that, on, on that show was, so it was a very spiritual, I'm being on that Island and surfing and, you know, we'd be on a boat and for lunch, you know, Jack Bender, God, I miss him so much. He's one of the showrunners and executive producers. And we have an hour and a half lunch instead of an hour lunch so that we can all jump off the boat and go swimming in the middle of the ocean Okay. and then get out and get our makeup on and then do the scenes again. You know what I mean? It was that kind of set. It was a magical, magical time for me. And that's shot in Hawaii, right? Shot in Hawaii. So that must be good because I always hear people who do Hawaii Five O say the same thing. It's like, you know, you get over there and it's just, like Hawaii Five O, they give you it's like a ten day shoot, but like one guy said, I had seven days off. They're not going to fly you back. He goes, yeah. it's, it's like a vacation. Yeah, it is, and you know it, it is. But yeah, but the thing with Lost was it's just the way it was set up is it was an ongoing thing in in the sense that um, Hawaii Five O is very episodic and and it's a procedural. So you every week you have different people. This one is like a family, all the same people. It's their stories, you know, and so you build these relationships. I really. I missed that show and I missed it so much. It's it was a very special time for me. So you get back from that and you're, you're as I said, you're acting and then I noticed, you know, you're doing some different things, you know, it's CSI, just different stuff that you stop it. Then you're up on single ladies. Now 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 the thing is your another gift. Your career before that has pretty much been drama. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not like you're sitting there pursuing sitcoms your roles as i said look down you know, the mentalist leverage yeah, stuff like that yeah. even if i don't know if they were maybe some sort of comic reliefs but you're not a sitcom guy not steven uh steven merchant no is that who's single ladies uh no, no uh single ladies was queen latifah's company and um um oh boy uh, i can't forget her name because the showrunner she's she's showrunner on american crime now she's an amazing writer an amazing producer well how did that come okay up? Well, I, I went in, I, it was weird again. It was, and the other thing is, is that I love that because this is basically, uh, all, 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 all African-American cast, mostly, you know, 
uh, the writers are African American, the producers are African American, and it was shot in Atlanta. You know, the an African American hotbed city, and I I can't tell you how much fun. I mean, I met I met Biz Marquis. I was the head of a record label, so I met I met all these amazing uh, artists. You met, met Biz Marquis? Yeah. Well, I worked with him, and it, we we were in a studio talking in the scene, and then there was a piano there, so we got a chance to actually sing his "Hey you." You, you got, got what, what I need. Oh, that was just that's was so just, cool. That was so cool. You know what I mean with Biz and and then again of of course uh, Mac Miller who at the we broke him out. He wasn't who he is now. Mac Miller's got like millions of followers and he is one of the most profound hip hop artists in the industry. He was he worked. I represented him on the show as like this new up and coming hip hop artist and now here he is one of the biggest hip hop artists. You know he's I mean as, as far as you know, he, he's, 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 he's top, he's top. And, um, you know, one of the producers of the show was, um, Tammy, uh, and her husband was one of the beastie boys. So there was a lot of musical people involved and, and, and single ladies was, I was a lot of, it was fun. It was, it was a fun show and I loved my character. It was, I play like an Ari Gold from Entourage. He was the head of this, this record company he was out of control and nuts. And now how did a, you, how did you get that part? I went in and, and I read for the showrunner and and uh, it was uh, I don't know how it was just in this small room and it was just an audition and a lot of people read for that role and I just grace of God you know I was so glad to get that job it was such a fun so different than what I was doing you know and what's good is also once again you're breaking a stereotype of a hip hop record you don't you're not thinking of a Middle Eastern in that record in that position which yeah. is, must be great that it must also well my character wasn't I don't I mean I just I don't remember my character this is bad I gotta remember these people Wes Dominguez yes Wes Wes Dominguez yeah and uh, it was it was yeah it was breaking out but that's what I'm saying I've had a career that a lot of my uh, fellow actors who are Middle Eastern have not had the opportunity where they're you're always like, you know, everything has got to be, you know, in the accent like this. And I haven't. So I don't, I'm not in that mood of, of complaining for myself. or, But I, I do still think that I've been lucky to have those non-stereotypes. But in general, there is, most of them are doing a lot of these stereotypes stereotypical roles. But yeah, but I would say it must be lucky. I mean, I was going to say lucky is because, you know, you, you're breaking a stereotype you know because I mean, yeah you know especially you know compared to ari gold i mean it's like you know it's that's the thing you think a record executive you think you know y you have your preconceived stereotypes you yeah. know for for r&b you're thinking of an african-american you know like a jay-z or a p diddy who's a mogul right you know, or for like you know like an ari gold like that agent over the top and so that's good you got that and so now, now you did that show, and you, now were you staying in Atlanta? Did you like? Did yeah, you, I loved did you dig uh, Atlanta. Yeah, man, it's I did. Hot, it was it was way too humid for me, and it reminded me of the East Coast humidity, and it made me so grateful to be at Cali. But the oh man, Atlanta had food was great. They had really good food there, and the people of Atlanta are wonderful, man, wonderful. And I already had friends there. Um, my friend Amara Kennedy, who's all over the internet right now. Because Oprah showed up to his 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 own apartment the other day when they had a a, a watch party for her show her new show Belief, and Mara was working for the uh, um, National Institute of Civil and Human Rights, and so I and that's you know Atlanta's a hotbed for a lot of this stuff and the movements because of Dr. King's family and all the and so I was involved with all that stuff while I was in Atlanta you know and um, it was a really a great time for me in Atlanta yeah it was really fun to be surrounded I you know. I'm sorry. I mean, it's the facts. I guess they're very truthful these days. But being on an ethnic set is different than being on a set that is, uh, you know, predominantly uh, one race or another race. You know, I mean, that's just the way it is. It's just, it's a different flavor. It's the way, the way that the way people communicate, hang out. It's different. And uh, it was refreshing to be on a set where my bosses were of 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 you know African American background. You know. It was it was great, you know. Queen Latifah, she, she's amazing. Man. Well, it's so funny. You go from a role that's ethnic, you know, very ethnic, and then you come back and end up on Beverly Hills 90210, which you can't get whiter. I mean, it's like there is not a white. I mean, if you look at the history of in the last years, I mean, yeah, it's it's just the but the whole concept, which is funny, as you say about stereotypes. Now, you know, if you go to Beverly Hills, there is a lot of Middle Eastern. It's but, not all, but white. they had one, oh, and that's okay. and that's why I played my, and that's why I commend the new nine to finally for them getting it. They had my my dear friend Michael Steger, who one I played his uncle on the show, 
who played an Iranian American. He played an Iranian kid from Beverly Hills. And I thought, this is what I'm talking about. And he was one of the most popular characters on the show. He was one of the best actors on the show. And his, his storylines work. It's fine. You can have. You don't have to have a guy who look, you know, because the people that said the new 90210, see the old 90210, again, I, I must be nuts, man. I, I, I wrote a letter to, um, uh, oh God. Spelling. Yeah, uh, Aaron Spelling at the time when when the when the when the first nine hundred two one zero came out and then since then I be, met Jason and became friends with Priestley and uh, I haven't seen him in a long time but um they when they did that I wrote a letter because even back then listen Beverly Hills Mayor was from Iran Jim he was an Iranian American that's how many Iranians go to Beverly High I'd say the school is fifty percent Iranian. So you're going to do a show about Beverly Hills and Beverly Hills High, and you're not going to have an Iranian back then? Even back then, it was a joke. How can you not? That, that to me, is, is being racist. It's being bigoted. Like, you, you want to represent that school. Why not have a cool Iranian guy and show right. him? Because they are cool, and they are nice kids. It's not like they're... They're all they're knuckleheads and bad people, or you know, I mean, that's the kids from my neighborhood, <laughs> yeah, exactly. in New Jersey. <laughs> but no, you're right. I mean, you're you're totally right about that. But that must be great because. But then also, you know, now now did you uh, do you get recognized a lot because of your it roles? Because you've been in certain shows that have that cool following. I I I recently know, and plus the thing is, I my looks have changed so drastically from the roles I play. It depends what I was doing. You know, when I was on Threat Matrix and I was on national te network television every week, yeah, I got recognized, especially in Vegas, because Vegas gets a, a, a potpourri, a mishmash of the entire country that comes in there from all over, and they have conventions. So I walk through places in Vegas, and people would walk up to me and actually know my character. And, and, and during Commander in Chief, yes, I got recognized. Um, interesting things would happen, you know, with Commander in Chief too, because I played a gay character. And I was on the cover of, uh, you know, gay magazines. I was in The Advocate, and there was a lot of profile with that character. I was not, the, the show was nominated, but because of my character, a gay, the GLAAD Award for best uh, best series. Uh, and I went to those award ceremonies. We didn't win. Some some other uh, show won. Um, but um, I that during that period, yeah, when I was on network television with such high-profile characters. But recently, it's, it's no, not, not too much. I think I get a lot of people that stare at me thinking, I kind of, I, who is this guy? You know, they can't really place me. And that's fine. You know, I, I, I you know, my ego for is, is, is been knocked down for, in the sense of like, I want it to, I don't want to, I just want to be a servant and, and service humanity the best way I can really. I've noticed as I get older, my dad did that before he died. You know, it's all he did was, was be a great doctor. And I don't think I'm any more special. I, I swear if I was, uh, had an Oscar on my mantle, I'd still be working with the this the organizations that I do. I mean, I take the lead of Gary Sinise. Recently, I was working with Gary again, and this is who I want to be. You know, I want to be Gary Sinise, who is an actor, a consummate actor, but really his life is about his dedication to the Gary Sinise Foundation, which is to help um, veterans and soldiers who have come back with legs blown off, with family, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, and all he does is raise money to build houses, builds houses with his own hands, build houses with his own money, and helps, you know, fit these houses with people who, who can't walk or, you know, he, this guy, I mean, I'm, I'm going to work with his foundation. I'm begging, you know, Judy Otter and the people at his foundation to work with him because I feel that's what my life is where I'm happiest. You know what I mean? Did you work with him on Beyond Borders? Yes. Okay. You know, because my girlfriend did a bunch of uh, extra work for that and she was on an episode with Lombardo Bayor. Oh, I know Lombardo. And, uh, it's yeah, funny because I, I sent him a message on Facebook. I go, hey, Joanne's playing a, a, a uh, uh, secretary. She's been there for the last three days. It was a Cuban episode. Oh. Two minutes later on Facebook, he goes, wait, you mean this girl? And he took a selfie oh, with her, which is cool. That's funny. Now, American Odyssey, what was that, what was that show like? Uh, that's uh, really one of the newest things I did, and it was really heartbreaking to see it get canceled. I can't Once again, another show that got great What? Yeah, once reviews. again. Yeah, rate, great, good reviews, really strong reviews, but not good ratings, and it's frustrating for network television to come up with such a smart show, well shot. It was like cinematic. That I did have a lot of people that had watched the show come up to me and go, what the hell happened to that? And I had a really fun character, really interesting character. And, uh, oh, God, it was tough to see that go. You know, Facinelli was great in it. Working with him, I'm, a lot of my scenes were with him. Peter's a great guy, great actor, uh, and uh, we had some really fun stuff. I shot on the Staten Island Ferry that I used to take all the time in New York, and to shoot a scene on that overlooking 
you know, Manhattan and seeing the, sh- the buildings in the background. It was just, it sends shivers down my spine. So it was a very, I don't know what happened with that show, but it was very smart and it was a very political show and it was really uh, a strong Presidential show. stuff coming up. Yeah. As you said earlier, you know, um, you don't know. That could be some of the reasons. You know, you sit there, people don't want to sit there and deal with president. They don't want to hear about that stuff. When it, it's funny because this whole election on Facebook drives me crazy because the it's still over a year away and every day I see post, post, post. It's crazy. And it's you right. know these people are going to stop. It's like anything on Facebook. They jump on the bandwagon and then all of a sudden they stop. Like, you know, it went from Bernie Sanders to Star Wars last night. It just changes that way. <laughs> so we have a few minutes left. What else is coming up for you? Well, I, I don't know. You know, I mean, coming up, I, I'm I'm waiting to see. You know, I did a film with Adrian Brody and Selma Hayek in in uh, Bulgaria for um, Millennium, which I, I, Avi Lerner runs, who I really, I like him a lot. And the film is about uh, a, a, a Jewish family that's trying to get out of Iran during the revolution. And I really loved the movie, and I thought it was a really interesting script. Uh, they it played Toronto, uh, mixed reviews, so I don't know what's going to happen to it, but I really enjoyed it, and I thought it was a very interesting film uh, about a situation that's very personal for me. You know, I mean, I had family members that were imprisoned in Iran. I've had family members that were executed in Iran, and I don't mean distant family members. I mean, literally, there was just a documentary out on BBC about this whole thing, and uh, three of the, well, two of the people that they showed were my family members, and my aunt was interviewed, my mom's sister. Uh, for a lot of the documentary, so it was it was very bittersweet. I cried a lot seeing it, and it brought bad memories of what's happened to my family in Iran because my family, they're Baha'is, and the Baha'is, the religious minorities, is is uh, really heavily persecuted in Iran. They are not allowed to go to school. Uh, that's why there's this campaign called "Education is Not a Crime." It's this international campaign, and now there's street artists that are painting murals all over the world, dealing with education is not a crime. Baha'is are not allowed to go to school in Iran. And if you go to school, you'll be you could be thrown in jail. If you if you run schools, you can be thrown in jail. There's people that were running underground schools to educate the children that get caught, that are jailed and imprisoned, tortured. And um, I'm very outspoken about that. And so um, I really wish that film, you know, would have had some more legs to it because it's interesting to see, you know, what's happened to people in these situations and and in, in Iran. So it was, uh, that's coming up. I don't know. And then, uh, of course, I just finished this thing with uh, Gary. And uh, and again, whatever else God has in store for me, you know, I don't know. Is the, uh, are the kids' soccer teams doing good? The kids the kids are very strong soccer players. Like, I don't, I don't again, I don't want to, I just don't want to brag about they, they, this. They have a, a great inclination. The team is really strong and doing very well. LAFA, the league we're in, is very... Uh, Southern Cal, SoCal is a very competitive league. It's the U.S. soccer track. So our, the director of our program, Hugo Perez, um, is was a national team player, and he also coaches, uh, I think, the U14, U15, UC national teams. Okay. So we have a lot of players that are on, you know, that it's, it's just a very competitive league. So right now we're doing very well, actually. I think we're like second and, th- and third in in our division but um we'd like to get higher but they're doing very well yeah they're real i'm proud of them they just won five nothing last week we lost to a team the other day eight one which was unfortunate but i just don't think it you know our kids are always the smallest kids right i don't know why our kids i always feel like when we play u9 I, the guys are as tall as me i'm like somebody's i think somebody's cheating here you know well i want to thank you for coming on this is fun uh, it was good. I'm glad we got in touch. You know, I saw you on yeah. Facebook, and I saw a picture with Sinise, and I said, "Wait a second, I'm not, and I don't know. I don't know how we're friends because you become friends with so many people on Facebook, and yeah. we are friends." And I was like, "Well, I'm friends with them," and, and I saw I hit you up. And, I, uh, I'm glad you did, Steve. You're such that, a wonderful guy. Now, Great interviewer you are. Now, thank you. Now, do you tweet? Do you do any of that stuff? I, 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 you know, I Instagram more because I like to put things on people. But I'm going to start tweeting because I have a lot to say, and I found out that the tweeting is the most concise way to say things. What's you know? your Instagram? My Instagram is I-T-Z-A-Z-I, it's Azizi, and my uh, Twitter is Anthony, at Anthony Azizi, A-Z-I-Z-I, and um, I'm going to start tweeting more. I have a lot to say. I just don't want to mess it up. Well, I want to thank you. I want to thank you again. Uh, people, follow him on Twitter. Follow him on Instagram. Follow me on Instagram, CooperTalk1. Uh, also, Twitter is at CooperTalk. I tweet all the time. I tweet funny stuff. I, try, I, I keep my tweets light. I keep them as jokes. 
Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have uh, over 430 episodes up there. Or you can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. I always get back to you. And my other website, stopthesalt.com. It's my low-sodium cookbook. You know, it went through my health problems. I wrote a book, 120 Easy Recipes, Low Sodium, No Pictures to Intimidate You, No Major Ingredients, and You'll Get Healthy, because you got to eat healthy, because we're not getting any younger. Get it on my website. I'll sign it for you, and you can get it at Amazon or Barnes Noble, but I make more money if you get it from me. So follow Anthony. Go go follow him on uh, Instagram. Follow me on Instagram, CooperTalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hippie as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I will talk to you guys all next week.